Hi, I'm Diana Penuchel, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. New Orleans is famous for many things. It's sights, bites, sounds, and culture. And this January, it's where ALA's LibLearnext conference will make its in-person debut with a vibrant array of speakers, educational sessions, and more. So let the good times roll, or as the locals say, les yeux, le bon temps rouler. This episode, call number highlights two beloved aspects of New Orleans, its music and its food. First, American Library's associate editor, Megan Bennett, speaks with library associate Joshua Smith about New Orleans Public Library's new and free music streaming service, Crescent City Sounds. Then, members of the Con Number podcast team and interviewees from this episode share their favorite New Orleans stops. And finally, I sink my teeth into the Southern Food and Beverage Museum's new culinary library in St. Bernard Parish, speaking with National Food and Beverage Foundation President and CEO, Brent Rosen. Liz Williams, who established the foundation, joins us as we discuss the library's huge collection of artifacts and culinary history and the current exhibit on Filipinos and their impact on Louisiana cuisine. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by the San Jose State University School of Information. The iSchool is a strong supporter of ALA and would typically attend LibLearnX, but this year, faculty and staff members cannot participate in the conference because California law prohibits state employees from traveling to states that have enacted discriminatory laws. The iSchool will greatly miss seeing its ALA friends and colleagues in person and looks forward to getting together again soon. In the meantime, the iSchool welcomes everyone to access its free equity, diversity, and inclusion resources, including an online symposium series available at iSchool.sjsu.edu and on its YouTube channel at sjsuischool.edi. In October 2022, New Orleans Public Library introduced Crescent City Sounds, a new streaming service that puts the spotlight on local and lesser-known artists. Associate Editor Megan Bennett talks with Library Associate Joshua Smith about how the streaming service was created and what went into curating the music catalog. To start, do you mind telling me a little bit about how the idea for Crescent City Sounds came about? Yeah. Um, So a few years ago, I was visiting a friend and colleague in Austin, Texas, and he had just set up a music hat catalog for Austin Public Library, and I was super impressed with it. So I came back here, and I was like, this is New Orleans. We're a music city. Why don't we have this? And so I started pitching it to anybody that would listen. Um, Took a little while to gain some traction, but when I actually like contacted the folks at Rabble, and looked at the numbers and everything, it ended up being a far more affordable option than I thought it was going to be, and um, all pretty easy. So they finally let me do it. Awesome. And do you mind explaining a little bit what the process was launching Crescent City Sounds from selecting the curators to selecting the platform, the artists and the genres and getting the needed licensing? What did that process look like for the library from start to finish? It all started by talking to the folks at Rabble. 
Uh, they were super, super helpful in the early process. They've got guides for how to pitch it to your library, which at that point I was already passed. But, um, you know, they were really cool with that and gave us a timeline of like when you should be contacting everybody, you know, all the steps along the way. I started with contacting curators. For our first round, I tried to keep everything rather broad. I was looking for um, people that would know a wide range of folks in the music industry and not anybody that was too pigeonholed. We started out with um, Lefty Parker owns a record shop here in town. Um, His wife, Allison Fensterstock, is a music journalist. She was on the curation team. We had um, Tavia Osby is a, a local music manager. She knows a lot of people. So we were just like, and we got a couple other um, DJs from the local radio station here. Um, David Kunian was one of them. And Alfred Branks is a local rapper. He was our most specific person that we had in it, but he was wonderful. And he came recommended by Tavia. So I tried to get as wide of a range of curators as we could together. And once I had that in place, we identified when we wanted to open the submission rounds and through our social media and um, other media appearances, and then also relying on the curators for their musical connections, we started contacting people and trying to get the word out to solicit all the submissions. That ended up taking a little longer than I expected, um, but that all fell during the busy festival season in New Orleans with French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest, and everybody was super busy. So it, we ended up having the submissions open for longer than we expected, but by the end, the turnout was great for it, and I'm glad we did that. We didn't really set like genre goals or anything like that for this first round. We wanted to just you know, make it as organic as possible and just solicit from the whole community. Moving forward, we'll look at gaps that we have in the current system and try to, to you know, get, get the right people for the next one and fill in our holes in the collection. Getting the rights to the music was um, a pretty simple process in all of this. The musicians are required to hold copyrights or have permissions for cover songs already. So we just licensed the music for um streaming only for a five-year period um and that was just as simple as taking a licensing agreement that rabble provided for us and having our legal department go over it and make some edits and stuff like that all right great and going back uh, a minute you mentioned rabble is that the platform that the library uses to host crescent city sounds oh yeah i guess i should have expanded on that yeah so rabble is this company out of madison wisconsin and they build these music platforms for libraries. They're um, a vendor that only works with libraries and does this one really cool thing. How many artists and songs are currently featured in your library's collection? We had an opening budget for 30 albums this year. So that's what we have up right now. I'm looking to add another 50 in the coming year. And ultimately, I'd like to get to where we're adding like 100 albums a year. And to you, what does this collection say or reflect about New Orleans music scene or the variety of musicians and genres featured in the in the platform? The biggest thing I'd like people to take away from this is that there's a whole lot more to New Orleans music than they might actually think. I have a lot of love for traditional jazz and brass bands and everything you think of as New Orleans music, but we have everything here. We're a 
super vibrant, diverse community of musicians. There's so many clubs here. Like you can go out and see anything you want pretty much any night of the week without too much work. So I just want people to know that like we have everything. It's great here. Definitely. And how do you feel the the patrons benefit from having this program through the library? There isn't any other music streaming service that's so focused. Like that's what I think the biggest benefit to the patrons is. You got to wade through a lot of stuff on any of the major services. And here you can come in and know that it's curated and know that it's local and know that you're supporting your community. And you personally, is there any favorite artist, uh, artists or, or groups that are featured in the collection? Every single one of them's excellent. I was super amazed with the quality that we got in our submissions. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of professional musicians in the city, but you never know what's going to happen when you just take submissions from the general public. Everything that came in was great. There's nothing on there that I don't like, but my personal favorite is probably Marina Orchestra. They're like cool beach rock, super chill vibes. I love Valerie Sassyfrass. Um, she has a very unique way of looking at the world and a wonderful humor. I think she's a great part of it. Nesby Phipps is a rap legend. He's amazing. The Quaylords are another favorite of mine on there. They're um, all instrumental, like horror movie themed, but like they're really representative of the the great but overlooked sort of goth scene that's always existed in this town. There's good singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, T-Guy is really cool on there. Good blues stuff. Um, Johnny Mastro. They're um, they're very New Orleans blues. They're great. But yeah, I mean, I feel like I just named half of the al- albums on there. But those are my favorites. And there's a whole bunch of other great stuff. And how will, um, and we talked about this a little bit, but to expand on that, how will going forward the library keep the collection current? And so I'm guessing there'll be more submissions or or, um, how will you continue to grow this platform in the future? Yeah, we hope to have at least one submission around a year to get more bands in. And now that we have the baseline with the opening collection, we can look at what we have and then compare that to like the music listing on any given day and see see what's going on in town that we don't have right now and try to find the people to connect to those musicians, um, rely on some other resources like that. So much of this is community driven. I'm trying to make inroads with like the the metal scene here. Like New Orleans has a wonderful metal scene since the nineties that I think it's really overlooked. I'd like to see more of that in the next round. I'd like to see some more punk rock in the next round. But really, it's just going to be comparing what's currently living on the album to what is on the live music listings every day and make sure that we're as representative as we can for everybody. Definitely. And what is your advice, uh, if any, for any other libraries who may be interested in doing something similar in their city? Absolutely do it. If it's something you're interested in, the process is probably easier than you're thinking. It's probably going to cost less money than you're thinking. And there's so much support from the folks at Ravel. They were personally helpful to me every step of the way where I needed them. But just the base materials they give you to how to plan it, how to pitch it, everything, like just do it. If you're thinking about it, go for it. It's a really cool service. The community loves it. The musicians love it. It's a whole lot of payoff for the amount that goes into it. (laughs) 
Today's podcast is sponsored by the San Jose State University School of Information. The iSchool is a strong supporter of ALA and would typically attend LibLearnX, but this year, faculty and staff members cannot participate in the conference because California law prohibits state employees from traveling to states that have enacted discriminatory laws. The iSchool will greatly miss seeing its ALA friends and colleagues in person and looks forward to getting together again soon. In the meantime, the iSchool welcomes everyone to access its free equity, diversity, and inclusion resources, including an online symposium series available at iSchool.SJSU.edu and on its YouTube channel at SJSU iSchool EDI. New Orleans is truly a place with so much to offer. Here, members of the Call Number podcast team and interviewees from this episode share their favorite stops in the Big Easy. To start us off, I've got Joshua Smith, Library Associate from New Orleans Public Library. I guess I'm going to give you a two-part answer on this, because um, the first one is great, but I feel like it's sort of a cop-out, and it's probably already on a list that the ALA attendees are going to get. But um, City Park. City Park is an amazing, giant urban park. There's so much to it. Um there's natural parts, there's picnic parts, there's everything. But the coolest gem in the park is the sculpture garden. It's free, it's outside, the weather should be nice, and it's it's worth an afternoon. And then my not so much of a cop-out, but harder to accomplish is if anybody is at all mobile, the West Bank is amazing. Like go across the river. You can take a ferry from the French Quarter to Algiers Point which is a cute little little community. It feels like a village within the city and it's only a year younger than the French Quarter. There's some good restaurants, a couple of bars, the best views of the city um, from across the river on the levee. And if you can get a car and get around the West Bank, you can find the most amazing food from anywhere. Um, good local seafood, Vietnamese food, amazing Latin American food. There's a little bit of everything on the West Bank. It's really cool. Then we'll hear from National Food and Beverage Foundation President and CEO Brent Rosen and the organization's founder Liz Williams about their favorite stops. I'll give I'll give two places that are both in Uptown New Orleans that are really for New Orleans. You know, everybody goes to the French Quarter, and and so it's almost and it's so accessible that you know if you've been to the French Quarter, you can find things there. But there's a couple of things that are so New Orleans that are outside the quarter. And they're close to each other. And they're the Columns Hotel and um, Casamento's, the Oyster Bar. Uh, the Columns Hotel has been around forever. I don't know how old it is, but a long time. Um, it just got renovated. And the cocktails, you sit on the front porch. It's uptown, so a little bit out of the, the sort of craziness of downtown. You can see the streetcar come by. There's beautiful oak trees. And it's an old house that's, that's a hotel where you can really just kind of watch the world go by and enjoy a Pimm's Cup. And then Casamento's is an oyster bar that's been around for over 100 years in New Orleans. The best way to describe it, it's like dining in a drained swimming pool. The whole place is tile. The oyster bar is tile. The floors are tile. But to get a dozen oysters there or an oyster loaf, it's just something that I can't imagine somewhere else like it existing anywhere but New Orleans. And, and those are two fun places that are they're not totally on the beaten path, not totally off the beaten path. But I, I would definitely recommend to people who are in town for, for a short visit, you will get a lot of New Orleans in a short period of time visiting both of those places. Even though it sounds very self-serving, 
I believe <laughs> that the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is absolutely a cannot miss stop in New Orleans. Um, not only does it tell you about the food and drink of New Orleans, and you can get a drink once you're there and wander around the museum with your drink in your hand and enjoy the entire place. Not only can you do that, you're going to be buying a drink at a bar from the mid 19th century that's really beautiful. You're going to see all kinds of fun things about the food of the South. And so you're learning something, you're enjoying yourself. And I just think it couldn't be a more fun place to go and spend time. And finally, we'll hear from the Call Number podcast team. I'm Tara Dankowski, Managing Editor of American Libraries. And some of my favorite spots in New Orleans include the R Bar and Royal Street Inn. If you need a break from the French Quarter, this is a really good respite. You can walk up Royal Street. It's a place where you can get $2 beers, nice cocktails. It's just a calmer vibe from the party atmosphere of downtown. Um, another stop I would make, Euclid Records. Definitely hit it up if you're going to be in the Bywater neighborhood for restaurants or you know looking at colorful houses. But this shop has just so many cool local selections and categories. You can get swamp pop albums or Cajun comedy albums. So, so it's definitely something off the beaten path, but take a look. And speaking of music, um, I would try to catch the Hot 8 Brass Band at Howlin' Wolf. It's this small music venue right by the convention center. The band plays practically every Sunday, and they put on such a lively, inclusive show of cover songs. It's so high energy, and it's impossible to leave in a bad mood. Hi, my name is Megan Bennett. I'm an associate editor at American Libraries Magazine, and one of the first places I plan to visit in New Orleans is the Jazz National Historical Park, which is just a few blocks from the French Quarter. Every time I travel within the States, I pack my National Park passport, which looks a lot like a regular passport, but inside you collect stamps from sites run by the National Park Service, whether that's monuments, parks, historical sites, or other historically significant places. So when I go to the jazz park, I can collect a stamp, learn more about the history of jazz music, maybe catch a brief walking tour or some live music even, and so I'm very excited to see and learn something new. Hi, I'm your host, Diana Pananchal. So my favorite New Orleans stop is actually just uh, 15 minutes outside of the city at Lafreniere Park, which is in um, the suburb of Metairie. And I love Lafreniere Park because it's not only got such a beautiful trail, it's also got this little um, marshland swampy area where you can sit and watch turtles for an hour or for however long you want to. And bonus points, there's also a Sal Snowball stand and a uh, Café du Monde pretty close by here. So you could be like me and eat beignets while you take a beautiful walk. Um, just don't feed the turtles any beignets. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jamie Santoro, Senior Editor with ALA Editions. My trip to New Orleans won't be complete without a stop at Café du Monde for their fabulous beignets and their chicory root coffee. Café du Monde is just a short walk from the convention center, so it's a perfect place for a morning coffee or a sweet afternoon pick-me-up. At peak times, lines can be long, but those beignets, they are always worth the wait.
As a strong supporter of ALA, the San Jose State University School of Information is sorry to miss everyone at the upcoming Libler Next conference. California law prohibits iSchool faculty and staff members from traveling to states that have enacted discriminatory laws. This means the iSchool cannot attend the conference this year because it is being held in Louisiana. SJSU and the iSchool are committed to protecting students, faculty, and staff members from discrimination, including restrictions on the rights of LGBTQ community members. The iSchool welcomes you to participate in its Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Symposium series. EDI resources are available free to all at iSchool.sjsu.edu and on its YouTube channel at sjsuischoolEDI. Also in October 2022, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and Nunez Community College opened a combined research center and library on the college's campus in St. Bernard Parish. The library boasts 40,000 books, menus, and other artifacts covering the Big Easy and Beyond's culinary history. I spoke with National Food and Beverage Foundation President and CEO Brent Rosen and Liz Williams, who established the foundation, about the importance of food in New Orleans culture and what exhibits and ephemera you can find on a visit to the library. First, let's start at the beginning of the story. Um, how did the idea to open the new research center slash library come about? We, you know, we decided to, that we wanted to have a research center early on um, after the museum opened because we realized how important it would be. But um, it took us a long time to find a final location because our our library kept expanding and expanding and what we were collecting began to expand and expand. And we wound up actually moving twice, um, which was just horrible before the move to, um, to Nunez Community College. So it's been, uh, you know, an ex- it's been exciting to, to come here, but it, um, it's been a long journey first to figure out what we wanted and uh, then to kind of accept how grandiose we were being. So <laughs> it was great. And our, our former library was on our, on the same street as the museum, was really right across the street from the building, which was really convenient in the sense that people could come and see us and then walk over and be sort of guided through and, and shown different things. The move to Nunes Community College was really motivated by our need to make it more accessible to everybody. And while we did have it close to the museum, we did not have a full-time librarian at the time. And we really weren't able to just say, the library's open, come and see it. And the Nunes Community College Partnership really kind of helped us there in the sense that their librarians are available as the sort of general librarians. If you need something specific or, or need to get into our archival area, then you know we would have to be involved. But for the most part, when Nunes is open, the library is open and that really makes the collection something that can be picked up by students, by researchers, by anybody in the community who's who's interested. And, and so the move there really was about, you know, not just having the space, not just a, a new, you know, pretty facility, which it is, but also really being first and foremost, you know, thoughtful about how do people get to this and, and how can the most people possible access it. And um, kind of building off that question, you know, food is such a hard thing 
you can't exactly place a dish into the shelf of a library. So <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, what has the community, um, what has their response been um, seeing kind of their local history or just their food history in general? How have they responded to this new resource? Well, if you consider calling us up and saying, I have these books or I have these pamphlets or I have these things that I think would enhance your research center. If you consider that response support, then I say they are very, very supportive. People are just going out of their way, not only locally, but we once received 20 boxes of books that were totally out of the blue that um, had been sent to us because someone had read about what we're doing. They came from California and we're in New Orleans. I mean, that's a big, <laughs> big distance. So people are very excited in that way. You know, the as far as the community goes, I, I think there's multiple communities that are really users of the library. And the researchers are the people who are most excited now. Where I am excited is is really using the research center as as an outreach sort of tool for the hospitality community and in the general sort of food and health area. But with the expansion that we have, we'll really be able to to bring members of New Orleans' hospitality community. And you, as you know, that's a really important industry here in New Orleans. But so many people who are cooking in kitchens in New Orleans, for instance, aren't from here. And so they haven't really spent a lot of time with the books and the history uh, developing their sort of deep knowledge of the Cajun or Creole cuisine. And so we'll have that as an opportunity for people. And then on the whole health side, we have a ton of books on on nutrition and kids eating and different sort of whole health and lifestyle books that we're really excited about turning into you know more outreach in the community ourselves so that we can use this not just as professional development or for serious academics, but really as a resource that can benefit anybody in the community. What does uh, food and cooking and sharing a meal together mean to the people of Louisiana? It's absolutely central to family life, um, as well as to just generally being with friends. I think that the food identity of the people of Louisiana is very, very strong. Um, I don't think you can disconnect the way people feel about food and the food of Louisiana from the way they feel in general about being people. And so I think it's extremely relevant to the people here. I think there's really, you know, Liz summed it up extremely well. I mean, one thing you'll hear a lot of people talk about, you know, in New Orleans is you'll be eating lunch and trying to figure out what's for dinner, or you'll be having dinner and talking about what are we doing tomorrow to eat. And, and I think it is really kind of a, a central preoccupation. And we really do have a, a cuisine in, in Louisiana and in New Orleans. And it's something that everyone who lives in the area really does have an understanding of. And so I, I think there's a lot more conversation about food a lot more knowledge about kind of where the food comes from, which groups have contributed what. And, and there really is just a really broad knowledge of cooking in New Orleans and in Louisiana in general. And that makes it fun to have an organization like ours because so many of the people that are, are kind of consumers of our, our information are also about as passionate about it as we are. So <laughs> it really is a, a neat community to, to be doing this kind of food uh, research and work in. And could you tell me a little bit more about your current exhibit, uh, Filipinos in Louisiana? 
Sure. Um, this exhibit, it, it's funny because, you know, how does an exhibit come to be is a really fun question. And, and this one really came out of a relationship that we had developed with um, Consul Robert Romero, who is the honorary consul for the Philippines here in Louisiana. And Consul Romero came to visit us one afternoon and, and explained that the first settlement of Filipinos in the United States was actually just outside of New Orleans and very close to where our library is located in Araby um, no, and Chalmette, known as um, St. Malo. And this community was established sometime in, in the late 17, if not early 1800s, and was a fishing community, primarily dried shrimp. And so the Filipinos who had come with the Spanish who decided to stay, created the beginnings of New Orleans's dried shrimp industry. We would have huge football field-sized platforms made out of wood um, in areas near Lake Bourne, which is sort of the lake on the, on the way to Mississippi from here. And each of those um, platforms would dry you know, tens of thousands of shrimp, and then it would be taken to New Orleans in barrels and then sold internationally. And so from that community, then we got to a Manila village, which happened a little later after St. Malo was destroyed by a hurricane. And Manila village was on the other side of New Orleans in Barataria Bay. So instead of being to the east of us, it was to the west of us and further south. And that community, again, remained a thriving fishing and, and trading community for years and years. And over time, uh, Filipino Americans really became very integrated into uh, New Orleans. Um, religiously, you know, most of the Filipinos who were here were Catholic, and so was most of the New Orleans population. So there was always that sort of commonality between people. And, and with all of the fishing, shipping, sailing, all of those industries that really were, were things that the Filipino community were, were excellent at, it, it became kind of a natural fit for the Port of New Orleans and the community here. And so Consul Romero helped, you know, to explain to us the history of St. Malo, uh, some of the the figures and characters of Filipino descent who had come to New Orleans and and really developed a thriving community. And we just thought, you know, how neat would it be if we're going to open a library that's only a few miles from the location of this initial community? Why not focus our energy for the the first exhibit on telling this story? And it really is a food story, you know, as much as it is a story of immigration or, or a story of of you know people's coming here there's very very interesting food history that comes from the filipino community and we learned all about gardening because a lot of people who came you know from the philippines to the united states the climate is similar enough that so many vegetables that are part of filipino cuisine can be grown here and there have been members of the filipino community for years and years who have kind of been the community growers where you know you can go to them and get different kinds of squashes different herbs, different things that, you know, season food or, or make it sort of give it that taste of, of, of authenticity. And um, adding on to my question, what are some, um, you know, other must-see artifacts to explore and learn more about at the library? So I'll let you know that we do have um, a number of really old books that are quite interesting to look at especially some of the older nutrition books, I think are really fascinating. Um, it's interesting to see what people thought was healthy in the late 19th century, for example. Um, so that's something that's kind of, uh, I think, fun. Um, we also have, for those people who are really interested in modernist cuisine and all of those wonderful photographs that... Uh, uh, Nathan Mirvold has taken and his team has taken. 
we have all of those books. And so it makes it possible for people who perhaps couldn't afford books that were hundreds of dollars or, or sets that were hundreds of dollars to come and actually enjoy those books while they're here. Like in our pamphlet collection, we have um, old World War II ration cards and um, pamphlets that tell you how to make do with different things that are being rationed and how you can substitute something for those rationed items, which I think is really an interesting thing to learn about history just by reading some of these um, these pamphlets, things you wouldn't have thought of. For example, we have some of the early pamphlets that came, and they're really books, but they were small like pamphlets. Um, for people who were buying for the first time an electric refrigerator. And when you look at it, of course, you can see the refrigerators in the museum. But here at the research center, you can see the pamphlets and read them. And they'll have things like what you need to know. And one thing is how to make ice. And oh. the idea that you have to be taught how to make ice, I think, is really fascinating. But people had never been able to do that before in their homes. We also have a, a, an incredible archive of menus from all across the United States. And these are restaurant menus, hotel menus, bar menus. We have airplane menus, railroad car menus. Pretty much any kind of menu you can imagine, it is in the archive. There's about 5,000 total menus. And it's a really neat way of looking back through food history because you cannot just, you know, see what was on menus. You can see what the prices were. Oftentimes it will have places of origin, you know, sort of mussels from this place or oysters from that place. And it really gives people who are, you know, researchers a neat snapshot and a primary source of, of what people were eating at the time. But from just the art, from a design, from a, a graphics, there are so many neat uses for these old menus because... In, in the old days, menus were really a, a hugely important part of the branding of a restaurant. There weren't all these other opportunities to do all the branding we have now. So menus were really kind of a way for places to show who and what they were. And, and now our archive sort of preserves some of these really neat, big format. A lot of the tourist restaurants that you would see, you know, along the beach or in New Orleans at the time had huge formatted menus full of different information and pictures and stuff. And it's just really fun to to be able to look back and see, you know, not just restaurants that are still around, but restaurants you've never heard of that at some point were obviously very popular because you can just tell from the menus they were real institutions in their communities, even if they're they're not there anymore today. We hope to see you at Libler next in New Orleans. Next episode, we're embracing the topic of love. That's right, L O V E just in time for Valentine's Day. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover? Let us know by giving us a call or reaching out on our social media. Thanks for listening.